You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Government's Visible Hand There is a very simple answer. Regulation. Once again, as with choice editing, this is likely to bring Friedmanite free marketers out in a rash. However, we need to remember that Adam Smith never assumed that the free market was unregulated. He was, after all, a moral philosopher and assumed the existence of societal controls in which competition could flourish. He also probably never anticipated that his invisible hand of the market would spend quite so much time engaged in the act of self-pleasuring. Today, we know that free market capitalism is a myth, an idealized fantasy that never has existed and never will exist. Rather, what we have seen in practice, even in the world's largest free market capitalist country, is that the visible hand of state intervention is very active. For example, the reason that America, like most countries of the world, has such cheap oil and gas, can be summed up in one word, subsidies. According to a 2009 Environmental Law Institute report, the US government paid roughly $72 billion to subsidize fossil fuels between 2002 and 2008. More than $54 billion of that was in the form of 23 different tax credits for oil, coal and natural gas producers, including those overseas, most of which are permanent provisions of the U.S. tax code. By contrast, renewables such as wind, solar and hydropower receive merely $29 billion, much of it also in the form of tax credits, although in this case, credits that expire after set durations. And more than half of the renewable subsidy, $16.8 billion, went to the controversial biofuels production of ethanol from corn. Similarly, Europe subsidizes its agricultural and fishing industries to the tune of 48 billion euros, making up more than 40% of the EU budget. Leaving aside the ethics of both of these categories of subsidies on fossil fuels and agriculture, what it tells us is that we know how to lower prices on things that we want, we do it by letting governments create incentives for scaling up. The problem is that, until now, governments haven't been bold enough to intervene at a scale that would make sustainable and responsible production and consumption happen in a big way. Let's consider for a moment the way in which governments finally intervened in most countries in order to ban smoking in public places. What can we learn from this? First, we know that it took decades of scientific research to make the health case irrefutable. Second, the reforms were helped along by a major expose of the lies and manipulation by big tobacco to undermine progressive legislation. Third, it took the weight of a major public body like the United Nations, in this case the World Health Organization, to legitimize the findings of the scientists. And lastly, it took courage by the politicians to take strong action that was so clearly in the public's best interest but would inevitably attract big bully lobbying from the tobacco, restaurant and pub industries. 
The interesting thing is that we have all but the fourth ingredient already in place for the broader sustainability and responsibility agenda. The science and research is mounting and calling for urgent action. Numerous companies have been exposed for wanton self-aggrandization, and the UN and other major bodies are putting their weight behind reforms. All that is still lacking is political courage, and even there we see some signs of movement. For example, the UK's climate change targets enshrined in the Climate Change Act are highly ambitious, committing the country to reduce its carbon emissions by 80% by 2050, with an interim target of 34% cuts by 2030. The simple fact is that beyond a few products like iPods that create their own mass market driven first by innovation and then by clever marketing and latent customer demand, most sustainable and responsible products and services need bold government intervention to make them competitive and scalable. There are at least two good reasons for this. First, as we have already seen, many of the less sustainable products and services are being subsidized so there is no level playing field on which to compete. And second, most of the more sustainable and responsible products and services that need scaling stray into the territory of being public goods, where the market fails. Speaking to me in 2008, sustainability guru Amory Lovins claimed that there are 60 to 80 well-known market failures to buying energy and resource efficiency. Put another way, If we want CSR to be scalable, smart government regulation is absolutely essential. A flotilla of little boats. Of course, the Walmart effect and government intervention are all very well in countries where there are massive branded companies and the state is in firm control of a relatively stable and effective political landscape. But what about in countries where governments are weak, failing or corrupt? Are there other ways to achieve scalability? And more to the point, what do we mean by scalability? Is bigger always better, or can we still cling to the notion of small is beautiful, as the pioneering economist E.F. Schumacher argued in 1973? Certainly the muesli-eating, sandal-wearing, new-age approach to small is beautiful has been rather more of an advertisement for small is groovy but ultimately ineffectual. But what if we could do both big and small at the same time? I discussed the issue of scalability with Simon Zadek, a widely respected thought leader on the civil corporation and accountability. Reflecting on climate change as an example, he set out the challenge as follows. How do we move from an increasingly discredited clean development mechanism approach, where the evidence is increasingly of huge abuse of funds, huge misrepresentation of claims, and altogether rather a waste of time and a lot of money, to a mechanism that can mobilize and move 50, 100, 200 billion dollars a year transborder that can mobilize, assess, invest, monitor and communicate credibly in the area of mitigation or adaptation. It seems to me, he said, we need the equivalent of a global fund for HIV, AIDS and malaria on steroids. So that is one version of a collaborative mode, continued Zadik, that will in any case spring up at a micro level. 
but can we go to scale? And indeed, is scale a large institutional functionality or is it a flotilla of little boats? This is where Chris Anderson's Web 2.0 concept of the long tail is very useful. The long tail, named after the extended tail of a statistical distribution curve, is the idea that selling less to more people is big business. It's the business model that has spawned most successful companies of the Web 2.0 age. The long tail questions the conventional wisdom that says success is about generating blockbusters and superstars, those rare few products and services that become runaway bestsellers. Anderson sums up his message by saying that, one, the tail of available variety is longer than we think. Two, it's now within our reach economically. And three, all those niches, when aggregated, can make up a significant market. He also notes that this long-tail revolution has been made possible by the digital age, which has dramatically reduced the costs of customized production and niche distribution. There are three enablers of successful long-tail businesses, according to Anderson. First, democratizing the tools of production. For example, digicams, content editing software, and blogging tools. Two, democratizing the tools of distribution. For example, Amazon, eBay, iTunes, and Netflix. And three, connecting supply and demand, such as what Google, Blogs, and Rotten Tomatoes does. The Long Tail of CSR Back in 2008, having read Anderson's book, I set to wondering, is there a long tail of CSR? And if so, what does it look like? To me, the long tail of CSR is all about extending the reach of CSR and improving its ability to satisfy specific social and environmental needs. Let's use Anderson's enablers as a framework for thinking about this. First, democratizing the tools of CSR production. For me, this is about breaking CSR silos and extending CSR beyond multinationals. At the early stages of CSR adoption, it is often confined to public relations, corporate affairs even, or marketing departments. As CSR implementation matures, responsibility tends to migrate to specialized CSR departments of various descriptions, environment, health and safety, accountability, corporate citizenship, and so on. However, these versions of CSR are like the Hollywood model of blockbuster films. They suggest that CSR is about a few high-visibility programs that are designed by CSR experts and delivered by big companies. By contrast, democratizing CSR production would mean firstly embedding CSR across the organization, in other words, making it the responsibility of operations managers, financial managers, shop floor workers, basically everyone. This is only possible if CSR becomes part of the culture and incentive systems of an organization. CSR would also need to be extended beyond the usual suspects. In other words, the high-profile branded companies. It needs to be extended to less visible, business-to-business and national rather than multinational organizations, as well as to small and medium-sized enterprises and down the supply chain. 
Second, if we look at democratizing the tools of CSR production, well, to date, CSR has mainly been distributed via a few select projects, typically philanthropic or charitable activities, in which the company offers to help the less fortunate masses. Usually the nature and scope of CSR activities is determined top-down and offered as a fairly undifferentiated service. For example, Nike might decide to focus on sponsoring sports teams, events and celebrities, and Coca-Cola might choose water as its key CSR issue. The most common delivery mechanisms are money, in the form of sponsorship or other kinds of charity, or for the more advanced companies adhering to generic CSR codes and standards. By contrast, democratizing the tools of CSR distribution should include allowing staff to participate in CSR delivery through volunteer programs and developing more geographically tailored and sector-specific CSR codes and standards, such as the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil or the Global Reporting Initiative Guidelines for HIV and AIDS Reporting. Beyond this, embracing the bottom of the pyramid markets and supporting social entrepreneurs will allow the reach of CSR to be extended so that the needs of formerly unserved or underserved people can be met. Third, looking at connecting CSR supply and demand. Well, traditionally CSR has been offered in the form of grants by multinational head offices, which control the budget and set the criteria by which prospective philanthropic projects should be selected. For the more advanced companies, this has been extended to adherence by their operations to corporate codes of CSR practice and communicating this through CSR reports. Demand has typically come from community groups applying to corporate foundations for funding or NGOs taking an activist approach to demanding improved CSR practices. By contrast, connecting the long tail of CSR supply and demand will rely on increasingly using cross-sector partnerships and multi-stakeholder groups. For example, Rio Tinto works with the World Conservation Union to identify biodiversity needs and satisfy them through appropriate CSR activities. Companies may also use extended stakeholder networks of community groups, social entrepreneurs and microfinance enterprises to better match their capacity or to make a positive impact among those who can most benefit, as BP is doing with smokeless stoves in India and SC Johnson is doing with cleaning products in Kenya. Hence, applying the long-tail concept to CSR requires a different way of thinking about how CSR is generated, delivered and managed. It means making CSR a more inclusive and embedded process within the company and a more diverse and far-reaching set of activities outside the company. It also means creating meaningful stakeholder partnerships to ensure that the right kinds of CSR benefit the right kinds of people, where and when they need it. The long tail, in a nutshell, according to Anderson, is culture unfiltered by scarcity. So by extension, the long tail of CSR, in a nutshell, should be responsibility liberated by collaboration. <laughs>